Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cotrera Show for Friday, March 26th. Coming up, we are going to talk to Beck Taxi about the fact that they have been left out of the city's program to get vulnerable seniors to their appointments. Apparently, uh, the city has chosen to partner up with Uber, and taxi drivers are not so happy about that. Facebook is saying it's preparing again to fend off disinformation during a federal election. We'll talk with our tech expert, Carmi Levy, about what's going on there and what they are proposing and how Tim Cook from Apple wants to get in bed with you. But first, the variants of concern, we're finding out more about them and the fact that 60% of cases now are um, positive as being one of the variants of concern. I think the most common one they're figuring right now is the B117, which is the UK variant. I'd like to welcome onto the show Dr. Karim uh, Kurji. He's the Chief Medical Officer of York Region. I know you're a busy man, so I appreciate your time. You're most welcome. I know that you're a glass half full kind of guy when it comes to the race between variants and the vaccine, because there are people that say this is really a race. We're going to see which one wins out first. Where, where exactly are you sitting on this? So uh, we believe that uh, the vaccines can win uh, over the variants, but the way that we need to do this is by being very nimble. The province has done a very great job with respect to prioritizing groups, and we are working through those priorities. So once we've done the over 65s, um, we are going to reconsider with respect to having a parallel stream, possibly, with respect to targeting the hotspots. And uh, we have actually already assembled a list of uh, postal codes where we feel that if we were to go for the younger age groups, uh, ideally 40 and above, but initially we may have to start with 55 and above, given the resourcing and vaccine constraints, uh, we should be able to, as it were, contain the variants even more so. Uh, And the reason I say this is because Uh, only about 10% of the variants are occurring in the age group 70 and above. So the current vaccination strategies haven't really touched them. The majority of the variants are occurring between the ages of 20 and 70. And uh, our epidemiologists have done a lot of good work and they've looked at hospitalization rates, mortality rates. And we believe that the 40s and 50s are the folks that we really have to target. So that is indeed our approach. And, uh, it, I think, is it because these, this age group is working, you know, closer together and higher risk uh, forms of employment? So we don't know what necessarily causes this hotspot groups um, or areas. Uh, there are complex factors here. I mean, some of them may be working in manufacturing plants, and we know that manufacturing plants are generating about 10% of our variants in York region. Uh, some of them may uh, quite possibly um, have uh, other Uh, constraints, you know, um, that may actually be resulting in them having to work not from home, but from elsewhere. And uh, that may actually be exposing them to the virus even more so. This um, vaccine strategy that you are hoping to employ in York Region, you are hoping to employ that to avoid another lockdown. You're actually calling the government to avoid a lockdown. Is that correct? The purpose of following this particular strategy is really to get the virus under control. But I have actually been a firm believer against lockdowns. So what we do in York Region is to look for specific areas of concern, and then we act with regard to specific targeting for those areas of concern. 
So for example, uh, at this point, we are noticing a few problems with a few gyms, and uh, it's essentially the masking between the patrons and their trainers. And we have communicated that to the appropriate gyms. Of course, if this doesn't improve, then we may actually come down with even stricter measures. Likewise, you know, we see problems with funeral homes, uh, particularly folks after a funeral going to private gatherings. So again, we've communicated that to the funeral homes, and that has been our approach. You know, go for targeted interventions. I understand that. Say? Yeah, I understand that Wonderland uh, is going to have a. Uh an older demographic headed its way starting on Monday when you open up that drive-through vaccination site. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so we're very excited about this because it provides a better alternative for folks that may be homebound with mobility issues, but could still get into a car. And uh, um, basically they'll uh, come to the gazebo area where they are screened and uh, they are uh, registered as such, and then they go over to another ticketing stand where they indicate if they've got any special needs. And then after that, they go into one of four lanes where they stay in their cars and they're immunized there. And then they wait for about 15 minutes in a parking area, just in case they develop any of the rare adverse events, and then they're free to go. So we just ask them not to bring any pets along with them. Uh, service animals are fine. And so this is another alternative for people who have difficulty, as it were, in accessing our static clinics, because after all, they have to walk for, you know, maybe half an hour to an hour or so in those particular clinics. Reservations start today for 70 and up, is that correct? Uh, yes, indeed. They've started today. Uh, there has been a tremendous demand there. So additional spots will open up as soon as we have uh, security of vaccine supply in sight. Um, our clinics are very, very busy. And we want to keep it that way. Is this based on the, did you look to the COVID drive-through model in order to, uh, to put together this Wonderland drive-through vaccination site? So we had done a test drive-through during the flu campaign, you know, planning in advance mm -hmm. for COVID-19. And we did a test run again a few days ago with homebound individuals. Um, so we have been planning drive-throughs for quite a while now. And we are seeking to also work with some um, academics with respect to maximizing flows um, by using simulation studies. Stephen Lecce is going to be on the morning show with Greg Brady tomorrow on the weekend. Uh, they have an exclusive interview, but he mentioned that he talked to you about COVID cases in schools in York region. Um, can we, um, there is talk that we might have to close schools again after the April break. What do you think about the risk that schools pose with regards to the variants of concern that we're hearing about now? So we have put into place uh, many layers of protection with respect to the schools. And uh, we believe at this stage, uh, whilst we do get an increase in outbreaks, uh, we uh, uh, certainly are in no different position than where we were, you know, some months ago when the schools were open. So, and we believe that we can still contain uh, the situations. And so um, certainly um, we would not necessarily be advocating for any closure of the schools. It's so important to ensure that our children are able to attend school. And uh, there's a lot of psychological damage that actually gets done through all these closure activities. So we have to find ways whereby we can keep our children safe uh, whilst keeping the schools open.
Where do you sit on sports, outdoor sports? Because I know that the government may loosen some restrictions when it comes to outdoor sports. Soccer Canada or Soccer Ontario are really hoping that they will. Well, again, you know, being outdoors, you know, does diminish the risk. But at the same time, I think we are open to provincial recommendations on these issues, uh, given the fact that the variants are quite transmissible. And we mustn't lose sight of the fact that we haven't gotten out of this pandemic. It is really important that people keep their physical distance. They keep their encounters with people outside their households brief and they wear masks and they wash their hands frequently. We haven't gotten out of the pandemic, but we can navigate our way safely through it. Dr. Kurji, thank you so much for your time. I know you're a busy man, so I do appreciate it. You're most welcome. Take care. Prissy Teigen is now off of social media. She had been on Twitter and she's one of the early adopters of the uh, platform. She's something like 15 million followers and is called uh, an influencer. And you might not know who she is. She's John Legend's wife, but you don't have to know who she is. She says she's leaving because of the negativity on social media. And uh, I know that they're judging by the amount of people that have different social media accounts, that there are people out there that you'd be shocked to learn. But it is, in fact, true. Uh, I was just talking to somebody the other day who's in a relatively professional, um, professional industry saying that they they don't listen to normal media they don't that's not where they get their news their news they actually get all of their news from facebook i thought to myself you've got to be kidding and uh, facebook is trying hard to make sure that their news is credible comes from reliable sources but i'm guessing she's not alone and facebook is moving ahead with plans to protect its platform from being used to spread misinformation during our federal election which could come sooner than october 2023 20, uh, when it's scheduled for uh carmy levy is our is the director at infotech research group and he joins us now to talk about the the headline uh with facebook today welcome to the program good to have you on thanks for having me on kelly appreciate it so in the 2019 election facebook's team in Canada, they monitored the platform for signs of people trying to use it in a nefarious way to spread disinformation, misinformation. Um, So they are vowing that they are going to, they've already started making plans to protect the platform this time around. How are they going to do that? Well, they're going to use a combination of technology and people. So they'll use, uh, it's artificial intelligence in the background that kind of looks for using uh, algorithms, software, looks for signs of misinformation, content that has already been flagged as uh, spammy, not quite legit, uh, you know, not uh, sourced from legitimate sources, things like that, Um, as well as machine learning so that the artificial intelligence gets better over time. And what it'll do then, it's, it's almost like trying to sift the ocean because, you know, 3 billion people on Facebook are c- constantly posting. That's a lot of material to go through. Only technology can do that. They will then surface the, the stuff that they think is contentious and then share it off to uh, a moderator. And Facebook, of course, has hired tens of thousands of moderators, not specifically for Canada, but globally, uh, to take these reports, look at them and go, mm, yeah, okay, you know, the machine got it right, we're going to remove it, or, you know, no, this is a false positive, we're going to let it go. Um, so it's kind of a combination of, of both, but, you know, it is one of those uh, almost impossible 
sort of deals. How do you know if I show you something on in your feed, how can you stay beyond the shadow of a doubt that it is in fact misinformation? This is not simply looking at something and going, yeah, that is misinformation or that is not. There are a lot of shades of gray here. Uh, and in, you know, in putting in place or implementing a process across billions of posts every day that absolutely nails the decision in every single case, impossible. And so it's a really difficult challenge for Facebook. They're kind of damned if they do, damned if they don't. On the one hand, they'll be accused of not doing enough if they don't take a hard enough line. On the other hand, they'll be accused of, of clamping down on free speech if they remove too much. So it really is a very difficult position that they find themselves in. Are you confident that they can accomplish the goal, making sure that disinformation does not um, appear on their platform during the election? I don't want to sound negative here, but no. Uh, you know, we've seen this before. We've seen it in Canadian elections. We've, Despite what Facebook says about the 2019 election, there was misinformation on the platform and it was not removed uh, in a timely manner, if at all. Uh, and we saw the same thing happen in the 2016 US presidential election, the 2020 election down south as well. So, and countless other elections, uh, both here and around the world. This is part of our social media experience. The way these platforms are built, they're built and designed to encourage interaction. They're not designed as filters. And, you know, in fact, the filter is us. And as we've seen time and again, most of us aren't really doing our part. Uh, to clamp down on that so that when we see something in our feed that looks a little bit iffy, rather than making the decision to, okay, I'm going to flag it and then I'm going to hide it uh, and report it. Uh, instead, most people are just sharing you know, wantonly without checking where mm -hmm. it comes from. So to a certain extent, it's Facebook's responsibility, but it's also ours. And we haven't really been living up to that responsibility. Uh, well, I guess we've never had to have an interactive uh part to play when it comes to news or, you know, information or misinformation. So this is something mm -hmm. that people have to get used to. It's a new learning. Facebook is going to announce today that it will spend an additional $8 million over the next three years. They're going to help Canadian news media. What do you know about that? Well, you know, this is a, a direct result of what happened down in Australia over the last couple of months. It was this battle royale between the Australian government and Facebook, as well as Google, over the state of the of the, the news media industry, who should pay for it, uh, and, you know, whether social media has a role to play. Uh, the Australian government essentially said, well, these big tech platforms come in, um, essentially hoover up all of the advertising revenue, starve media organizations, uh, and then generate all the revenue from that online activity. It's not fair. They need to balance the the uh, the playing fields somewhat. So they struck a deal in Australia, and now it's had to allow uh, funding from tech platforms into media so that newsrooms can continue to operate uh, in concert with or partnership with uh, platforms like Facebook and Google and Twitter and others. And so now they're striking deals in countries uh, including Canada, the UK, France, Germany, Brazil. Uh, and so this is one example of that, is that Facebook is coming to the table, working with media organizations to say, okay, what is uh, a proper framework? You know, what should these negotiations look like? And how do we ensure that, you know, you and I, you know, consumers can continue to access uh, media content through our feeds? But more importantly, how can media organizations continue to afford to produce that content in the first place? Because as we know, when you're scrolling through your Facebook feed and you come across a, a news item, it isn't Facebook that paid to create that. It's the media organizations that somehow that revenue has to find its way back. 
And the timing of that $8 million investment is interesting because Kevin Chan is the top dog of Facebook Canada. Monday, he'll appear before the House of Commons Canadian Heritage Committee. Can you very quickly give us the goal of that face-to-face? Very much so. The Canadian government wants to know what Facebook's plans are, not just for this particular deal, but to continue to build these relationships with media over time, to create the funding frameworks that are fair to everyone, and to ensure that we have a sustainable media industry in Canada far into the future. And so, yeah, the timing is very deliberate. Facebook is trying to look like the good guy uh, before Kevin Chan sits in front of the uh, the Commons Committee. And the, the interesting thing here is, is they originally asked for Mark Zuckerberg, uh, but Mr. Zuckerberg is going to be busy in Washington speaking to uh, speaking on Capitol Hill there, so he couldn't make it up to Canada. So Kevin Chan's going to sit in for him, and hopefully, you know, from his perspective, try to convince the government that Facebook is the good guy here and is really trying to work. Uh, in everyone's best interest, not just its own. Can we turn our attention to Apple? Because they have done some really interesting things. I understand that they are, they've submitted um, um, the, I guess, a patent on Thursday for a potential new product, which would be uh, turning your bed into a haptic bed. What, what, first of all, what does haptic mean? And why is this interesting? Well, anyone who has an Apple Watch or even a phone knows what haptics are. Every time it vibrates, that's haptics. So it's it's sort of it's by feel. Um, and of course, hap- Apple has in- incorporated haptic technology into most of its devices. So instead of hearing a cue, you feel a cue, and that's very important when you're using your Apple Watch for fitness, when you're using it for healthcare um, applications. Uh, it's kind of a really neat way to interact with your technology. And so what Apple is doing, they recognize that the iPhone you know, isn't going to be their big uh, uh, revenue generator forever. At some point, growth is going to flatten out, and we're already starting to see that. So Apple's looking into other markets. Where can they take the technology they develop for their phones uh, and, uh, and incorporate it into other things that you and I might want to buy? And so we're seeing Apple get into healthcare and fitness and this bed is one example of that. Basically, what they do is they take that vibration, that haptic engine, build it into a bed, and then they hook it up to an app and some smarts behind it. And then, of course, it can help. It'll it'll monitor your sleep so that as you're sleeping, it'll sort of generate a, a you know a, a live interactive graph of how well you're sleeping and sort of what all the various uh, measurements and factors are. And then it'll help you sleep better. It'll suggest ways to sleep better. It'll, it maybe even it'll use that, the, uh, the vibration to coax you into a better sleep pattern. Who knows right now, it's just a patent application and tech companies do this all the time. Most of the time, none of this ever results in a consumer product, but Apple's an interesting one, right? They've pushed the bounds with technology for decades. It wouldn't surprise me if this or something like it showed up in a consumer product that has been kind of dumb all along, but Apple wants to make it smart so that they can add it to the list of services that you and I pay for every month. Well, if haptic means vibration, hopefully that haptic bed has a thousand finger massage option. (laughs) Um, It'll be the ultimate massaging bed, no question. (laughs) Apple's music, uh, Apple Music, we know that, uh, you know, they've been struggling. They're not doing as well as some of the other streaming platforms. They have a new feature. They're going to help people with speech disorders. What do you know about this? They call it Say Lists, uh, and it's directed at people with speech and sound disorders. And basically what it is, is there's a, it, it recognizes that if you have a speech or sound disorder or an SSD, 
that sometimes you will have difficulty with certain lyrics, certain words or certain phrases. They're challenging to hear and understand, uh, which of course can compromise your ability to really appreciate or understand the music. So what they're going to do is they're going to uh, look for, they'll embed an algorithm into their Apple Music platform, into the app that runs on all of your Apple devices. And it'll look for lyrics, because of course, every time it plays a song, there's a whole bunch of background information there that are challenging. And then it'll, it'll design apps and interactions that help ease the experience for people with an SSD. And so basically it means that if you're not just listening to music, the music player now becomes a smart music player. And if you have an SSD, it will then help get you through the difficult parts of the song, or in some cases, maybe suggest an alternative song that doesn't have those difficult to understand passages. Wow, that's really interesting stuff. Okay. I'm glad we got you on the show, Carmi. Have yourself a fantastic weekend, and thanks for joining us. So great being here, Kelly. Thank you. It seems like equity is the number one uh, component of a new program that the city is bringing in, but it's anything but equitable. Um, this was announced on Wednesday. It's called their Vaccine Equity Program. And starting on Monday, the city of Toronto is launching a new transportation plan that would help vulnerable residents and seniors over 75 get to their vaccine appointments because we know that there are a lot of seniors in the city of Toronto that are not getting vaccinated. We've got something like 200,000 of them that haven't been vaccinated yet, and they're over the age of 80. So this program involves working with a number of partners, including the TTC and Uber Canada for their vaccine equity program. And as I said, where's the equity in it when one major component as far as getting people to and fro is left out, the taxi industry? Here to talk about it, Christine Hubbard, Operations Manager at Beck Taxi. Christine, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. When did you first learn about the vaccine equity program? At the same time as everyone else, it was announced in a press release uh, by the city and I almost fell off my chair. The reason being Uber is going to have a big part to play in this and taxi drivers left out. Can you describe the role of taxi drivers during this pandemic? The role of taxi drivers throughout this pandemic has been uh, they've been leaned on and used by this city to take people uh, without any support by way of PPE or subsidies or uh, sort of uh, any increased pay like we've seen in other cities around the world to take this extra risk. Taxi drivers have been taking people, again, on behalf of this city, to their COVID testing appointments, traveling between isolation centers and shelters and what have you. And there's not been so much as a thank you from this city uh, for them having done this work. So, you know, amazingly, and, you know, as expected, people are calling us already, using our app, calling our call center. We know our most vulnerable uh, citizens have not been able to use computers and smartphones, uh, you know, as, as much as we'd hoped they'd be able to, to book their vaccine appointments. The same goes for booking their transportation. So to work with an app-based company um, that may not even have to uh, cash in on their so-called donation, um, is is shocking when it's taxi drivers who are trained, 24-hour commercially insured, they have shields in the cars, there's in-car um, cameras to for safety. You know, these are the people who have AODA and sensitivity training. They're the natural choice, the safest choice, and, and certainly for our most vulnerable. Okay, I want to ask you a couple of things here, just to clarify. What do you mean when you say on behalf of the city? 
So it would seem to me that to move COVID uh, positive or COVID probable individuals wouldn't be an essential worker's job. Uh, grocery store clerks and restaurant workers are not being asked to interact in close quarters with people who would be COVID positive or probable. Yet taxi drivers who really should have been moved into almost the frontline category um, the city has instructed people, don't get on the TTC, and if you don't have another ride, get into a taxi. The hardest part about that at first, especially, is that no one in our industry knew that that advice was being given. So without their knowledge, without the you know common sense transparency that would be required in order to um, make sure that people are staying safe, this city, this province, has used the taxi industry and taxi drivers for that very risky work with, again, not so much as a mask, not so much as a, you know, a thank you. And it's, it's, it's odd to us that they would spend time doing things like complaining about high delivery fees uh, of food delivery companies when they could have instead just promoted their own taxi system. These are the only people out of the long list that, that uh, ha have been chosen for this program that pay municipal licensing fees to the tune of four times the amount of what standard licensing operators pay to this city. It's mind boggling. Um, they are the best and safest choice, the most well-trained and the natural choice for this service, yet they've been left out. Um, and you know, we're told, oh, well, if the taxi industry wants to make a donation, we can participate. I can't tell you the hundreds of thousands of dollars that we have donated uh, to this point throughout the pandemic from offering help delivering food, also helping people get to their vaccine appointments. We've been engaging in that, but our city is so uh, unaware of, of how local small businesses and medium-sized businesses have been giving everything they have to get us all through this. And it's, it's one insult after another, and I, I'm not even sure how it's possible that the city would endorse a company or provide essentially advertising for a company who may never have to cash in on their commitment. All right. So let's back it up here for a second and just clarify some things for people that might be uh, not as in the know about the story as we are. The city of Toronto says the partnership with Uber Canada is the result of $150,000 donations, but those donations are in the form of voucher codes for individual rides right. and they'll be distributed through the community organization. So it's not really a cash donation. Um, and they said that this is the second donation that they have made during the pandemic. Are they not just essentially paying for advertising? That's right. They're paying for advertising and, you know, paying for a partnership. And that's the thing that's a bit scary. The idea that a company that is frankly well known for underpaying their drivers for um, evading regulation, uh, that the city would strategically choose a partnership like this. When in fact, uh, if we wanna talk about it at the corporate level, Beck Taxi has donated hundreds of thousands of dollars given everything we can back to cab drivers in this city so that they have been able to be there for our most vulnerable. The saddest part is that this city has never, we've had no contact, even though, like I said, Taxi drivers have been out there taking people to their cancer appointments, uh, treatments, to taking seniors to their medical appointments, doing these uh, important essential deliveries, taking on all of this risk. Um, and they've never reached out to even say, how is it that you're still doing it? With a 75% decline in, in demand, how are you doing it? Well, it's because taxi drivers have also been donating all along. Right. And when you say they've been donating, how have they been donating? Like, how so have they been 
uh, skipping their fares? Have they been lowering their fares? Can you give us an idea of how taxi drivers have helped uh, the residents in the city of Toronto, especially the most vulnerable? So we have a million and one stories, fantastic stories about drivers and the way they've helped individuals. But taxi drivers with Beck Taxi voted a long, long time ago that they would offer a 10% senior discount to all of our seniors all the time. So this has been going on for decades. I can't imagine what the total value of that is. But at the same time, it's, you know, people who can't afford to get to where they're going. You know, taxi drivers have had to do a whole lot of negotiating when it comes to getting paid. And it's just been made that much more difficult because there are so many people in precarious situations right now. And it's a taxi driver who says to the to the senior recently, you know, I feel like you're a little unsteady on your feet. Why don't you let me go into the store for you and you can wait here in my taxi? Or I understand that you've had trouble getting toilet paper. I'm gonna go to my own home and come back for you with toilet paper so that you don't have to try again. These are the stories that our city has ignored. These are the people, the heroes, frankly, who've put themselves at risk, have put their families at risk, and have been ignored. Do you think it's because they can relate to their customers? Absolutely. These are the same customers they've had for so many years. And, you know, it's interesting. I think there's a misconception about essential service. Just because you're deemed an essential service doesn't mean that you're going to go to work. And we weren't sure when the pandemic started if taxi drivers would participate. Would they be too afraid? What are their own health concerns? You know, insurance rates went up. The city gave no breaks on on fees, yet demand had gone down by, you know, 80%, I think. But they went out there. So many of them talked about it. There were 300 to start who said, look, I know my passenger who I take almost every day who goes to this cancer treatment or dialysis treatment or whatever. What are they going to do if I stay home? How are they going to carry on? And so it was such an amazing sentiment. And mm. we've ourselves open business to out of business. And we've done everything. Every dollar that's come through this place has been to manage our costs and give back to drivers so that they can continue doing the great work they've been doing. Well, unlike Uber, um, Beck Taxi, you know, there you have some taxi drivers have, you know, set clients, as you say, you know, that have appointments that they just pick up because so you get the same driver all the time. You can't really do that with Uber because it's an app. I remember uh, I used to work overnights in radio long, long ago, and I had a Beck Taxi driver that would pick me up. Um, and drop me off all the time. Yeah. Uh, same, same driver knew me. I felt safe because as a woman, you know, you, you kind of don't want tons of people knowing where you live. And, you know, so, you know, I trusted this person. I, uh, and that is something that needs to, I think, be addressed that there is a trust and a community that is built with cab drivers and regular clients that you just can't get with the, you know, those ride sharing platforms. That's right. And I think, you know, from start to finish, you know, we talk about the fleet of drivers in this city, whether they're working with an app-based company or they're working as a taxi driver. The more drivers that are out there, the more risk of spread of this virus. And I would suggest that it's taxi drivers who have installed the shields in their vehicles that separate the, the passenger from the driver. These are the ones who are um, taking wheel-trans clients who have mobility devices. They're not sitting behind a shield all day. They're interacting with people. They're assisting people. And I would say that just most recently, we organized a, a vaccine appointment event, you could call it. We selected, you know, five drivers who have all of the, the, the things I've talked about, and they shuttled seniors sanitizing in between each uh, ride to and from their vaccination appointments. And we donated 50% of the cost. Mm. So it's, you know, and drivers get paid in full. You know, the, the, there's so many things wrong with this. 
And the city might say, oh, it's cheaper. Uber's cheaper. Well, the city of Toronto sets the rates for taxi drivers. Their income is set by the city. So it's, it's just nonsense all Christine, around. And we're can, can I ask you something I think is, is certainly important for everybody listening? Um, where are the drivers when it comes to the vaccine priority list? Are they considered the essential um, workers in phase two? No. So we've not heard anything specifically about taxi drivers. And I, I dare to say the way that I said before, and, and I'll tell you, my husband is a firefighter. He's a frontline healthcare worker here. I healthcare first responder. He's had his first dose of the vaccine. I would, I would have no problem saying that I believe that taxi drivers are in line with frontline. They are not, um, you know, these aren't people who are able to keep that six, six feet of distance. They're also the people who are moving all of those who are our most vulnerable, the 90 year olds, the 80 year olds, the, you know, people who are immunocompromised, you know, the idea that they're all interacting, but taxi drivers haven't been prioritized is shocking. And I think um, the fact that, and of course, restaurant workers absolutely need to be prioritized. But within that group, I mean, I'm working out of home. Do I, should I have the vaccine at the same time as a taxi driver? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Christine, I want to thank you for your time today. And um, I think you've you've punctuated a lot of points that we're going to talk about. And mainly, uh, should taxi drivers be priority for vaccine? I think you've just made a very good argument. I'm going to open up the phone lines at 416-870-6400 and uh, give our audience a chance to weigh in on this. Because I think arguably, um, Dr. Warner was on with Mike Stafford on the morning show, brought up a lot of good reasons why we've got this priority list all wrong. And maybe we shouldn't be vaccinating the people 70 and up that, that have the ability to stay at home as much as heading towards the hotspots and those people that should be in line that are in the face of the public on a regular basis, like taxi drivers. I want to thank you very much for joining us this morning. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Dave, what do you think? Should uh, taxi drivers be in that priority group? Because they've been left out. Well, I was listening, and uh, by the sounds of things, they should be right up there. Yeah. Even more so than the than the firemen. Nothing against firemen, but they live in a very close society. And uh, if they go home and stay there and just do what you're supposed to be doing, uh, they're not con- coming into contact with a lot of people when they're out doing fires. You, you would think that, but the thing is that a lot of fire uh, men are called out for they're the first responder to an emergency situation, whether there's a, there's a fire or not. So I think they do have well, to be in a situation where they're that's, vaccinated. That's a bit of a problem. You don't need 300 people showing up. for. Well, no, it's just whoever's first on the scene. And it. And I got to be honest, I was in a car accident on the on the Gardner like years ago now. Seems like yesterday, but years ago, and I was the back of the of this uh, pileup could not be avoided. And uh, the firefighters were the first on the scene to assess everything. And boy, can't say enough about the firefighters in Toronto. I appreciate the call, Dave. Hey, Rita in Newcastle, thoughts on this here? Well, I've worked with Toronto for years, and they have an entire staff team of professional purchasing and procurement people who send out RFPs and ask for proposals and evaluate bids. Now all you have to do is make a donation and you're in. Well, you know, nobody probably told the taxi industry that. Was that like a special deal just for Uber? What happened to the purchasing process? How how does this happen? Okay, so we're mixing a couple things up here because there's a couple of storylines. You're talking about 
um, the city's new uh, vaccine equity program, where they're going to try and get Uber's companion with them. And there'll be some vouchers. They've made a $150,000 donation to the city via vouchers to help get vulnerable people to their vaccine appointment. But what we're talking about in this segment, and that was the last segment. I appreciate you commenting on it. It means you're listening, and I, I love having people listen to the show. But what do you think about taxi drivers? Christine Hubbard said they have not been added to phase two of the uh, essential workers that should be vaccinated. Do you think they should be in that phase? Oh, my God, yes. I know nurses who work the night shift that take a taxi home every single night. So mm-hmm. if there's a front line, then the taxi drivers are the front line driving the front line. They're, they're, they're the people the city calls to take someone to an isolation center or a vaccination center. How can they not be vaccinated? It, it, it's, it's almost criminal. I love the way you put that. They're the front line driving the front line. And it is, it's an appropriate way of putting it. I, I can't imagine how they weren't in the first group. I actually talked to a taxi driver who told me he was called to a hospital to, or he was called somewhere to pick someone up. They put someone in his car and gave him an address and didn't tell him what it was. He took the person to the address. It was an isolation center. Whoa. They didn't even tell them. They didn't even tell him, you know, buddy, go home and take a shower. Nothing. Yeah, that's that's horrible. I appreciate that. You know, I had to go into I, I wasn't sure if I had uh, COVID. Uh, I had two COVID tests. I don't have COVID, but I had problems. I had some sort of viral res- respiratory uh, illness a couple of weeks ago. You heard me take some time off and I was coughing on the show. So I had to leave again for a while and I'm better now. But it was dodgy one night and I, I couldn't catch my breath and I was really concerned. And I went to the emergency room and, you know, you have to mask up and uh I didn't want to go but I was running a fever too and it, you know I had to so there I was and I did see a lot of taxi drivers coming in to pick up those people that were going home and I thought okay well that's great they've been assessed they probably had a COVID test but we don't know what the COVID test says yet because I didn't know till the next day negative by the way um but and what a great job I hats off to the emergency uh the emergency room workers in the hospital that I went to because they were great. And I thought to myself yesterday, there was a report where we learned the cost of a stay of a COVID patient in hospitals is $23,000. And if they have to be ventilated, it it goes up to about 50,000 bucks. I mean, the cost is crazy. And while I was sitting there getting a barrage of tests done, because they were really concerned because I did have a fever and I, you know, was presenting with some uh, a bunch of uh, symptoms of COVID. Uh, there I am hooked up getting EKGs. I got I got uh, electrodes all over myself. I've got my finger in one of those blood oxygen monitors. I've got uh, my arm in a cuff. I'm waiting um, for chest x-ray. And while that was going on, I thought to myself, geez, I'd like to know how much this is costing. And wow, am I ever happy I'm not living in the States because I don't have to lie here and go. I, I never had to make the decision, can I afford to go to the ER? I just went to the ER. Thank God we live in Canada, I got to tell you. Thanks so much for tuning into the podcast. Don't forget, hit subscribe wherever you download your favorite podcast and we'll be waiting for you daily. Have a good one.